Welcome to the Pitching Command Show, brought to you by Command Tracker, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com. Hey, joining today's podcast is my friend Bronson Arroyo, the Reds Hall of Fame pitcher and musician. Welcome, Bronson. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You've had a great career in baseball, and you were drafted by the Pirates in the third round in 1995, and you made it to the MLB with the Pirates in 2000. You pitched 16 years in the major leagues with the Red Sox, the Reds, and the Diamondbacks. You were part of the 2004 World Series Championship for Red Sox, and you just elected to the Reds Hall of Fame this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, uh, before we get into baseball, I wanted to tell you, I listened to your cover of Everlong. It's one of my favorite songs. And uh, uh, that you really did a great job on that. And then when I asked you about it, you said you had Stephen King do a line in that. I, I heard him say it, but how did that come about? Yeah, so, you know, Stephen was a, a big Red Sox fan. He still is a big Red Sox fan. He lives in Maine. I, I think he's coached baseball in his life several times at the Little League level, and he also owned a radio station. So it felt like it was kind of a, a no-brainer for us to ask him if he'd want to do this part in Everlong, because in the breakdown there, just before that last chorus in Everlong, you really can't understand what Dave Grohl is saying on the record. It's kind of like he's mumbling a little bit. So we thought it'd be really cool if Stephen could write a piece for it. And so we asked him, uh, this is the offseason of 2004. We just finished winning the World Series. I'm making this record kind of um, on a deadline in a lot of ways because I, I was asked if I wanted to put a record out, and I just said, man, there's just no way I have time. I mean, we were really busy taking the trophy to different state capitals, and there was just so much going on at the time. Um, right. Feeling like you were in the center of the universe, you know, doing TV shows and stuff. And so um, I was kind of crunching this thing together, but we asked Stephen if he would do it. And he said, let me listen to the song. And if I, if I think it's, you know, not junk, I'll do it. And so he wind up writing that part. Um, and if you listen to it, he, he, he tells this, you know, when you know it's Stephen King, it feels kind of creepy in a way. Right. Cause it, it's, yeah. it's like, it sounds like a doomsday prophecy, a lot of ways in what he says in there. And, uh, but that's his voice. And, uh, we shot it over to him and he did that. And, um, we had a couple chats about it, you know, and he was writing a book all through Oh four where he was chronicling the, the baseball season from uh, Fenway Park. He'd sit in the stands, and I think he would take notes during the games. And I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I know there's parts in there where, where he says, you know, I'm not sure who this guy Arroyo is. And then by the end of the year, he's he's saying, you know, it looks like this guy is about to be a frontline starter in, in Major League Baseball. So it's kind of this cool um, transition of him learning who I was and then getting to work with him a little bit was cool. That must have been very cool. If he was writing a book about the Red Sox already. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was just it was just kind of a one of those moments where I, I can remember being in Pittsburgh when I was a rookie and I was pitching to the Cardinals. And I remember striking out Mark McGuire and looking up on the Jumbotron and um, Arnold Palmer was watching the game from the front row. And it's just an odd, <laughs> it's an odd thing as a kid to think, man, I just struck out Mark McGuire and Arnold Palmer just watching me do it. You know? <laughs> a strange that's like, position. That's that's surreal, right? Yeah, uh, No doubt. Hey, I saw an interview uh, you did just recently. I think it was with uh, Frazier. And you were talking about you came out with an album that it's your original stuff now, right? Yeah, so I put the record out in February. Uh, it's called uh, Some Might Say. And it was really my first stab at original music. I had done that cover album in 2005. 
And I, I was waiting a long time. You know, people kept saying, when are you going to put another record out? But I really wanted to make that second album not be a cover songs and be something original. But, you know, I, I didn't pick up a guitar until I was 22. So it took me, you know, it took me a long time just to figure out how to play and to sing and to, to, to get comfortable on the stage. And I'm still, you know, kind of uncovering layers of that. But, you know, in the midst of that, writing your own songs felt like a whole nother genre, you know, something completely different and not just a performance, but now to put something down on tape that you felt was quality enough to put on a record. And so it took me until I retired, really, to take that process seriously. But with some friends around here in Cincinnati, um, one of them being Elliot Sloan from Blessed Union of Souls, the lead singer of that band from the 90s. He helped me write a lot of these songs. I would go to his house or another buddy named CJ, and we would take these ideas from the band, and I would bring just a subject matter for the day. And, and um, you know, all those songs on that record from top to bottom kind of came out of my brain. They're, they're ideas that I've observed in the world or a little bit about myself. And, um, you know, it was a fun project to do with a bunch of guys that I've known since 2004. Yeah, that has been cool, because I, I find music uh, playing, there's a freedom in it. Like you're just, you know, going with, you're not really thinking, you're not uh, responding, you're kind of just reacting. And there's a freedom in that. Uh, and then writing your own stuff, now you're even more free because you don't have to make it sound like someone else had made the song sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. You have your, you can, you know, put your own flavor in it. And people ask me a lot yeah. of times, listening to the record, you know, they'll say, I can hear a little bit of, can hear a little bit of Pearl Jam in there. I can hear some Tom Petty, you know? Oh, I can yeah. Hear you, I can hear some some folk music in there. You know, it, it's it's kind of um, you know a melting pot of all the things that I've listened to in my in my day and all through the minor leagues, riding on buses with 150 CDs before the iPod came out. You know, playing on a Walkman, and uh, you know, um, you know, you can't help but be a product of of what you listen to. And so you you hear some of those oh, influences. Yeah. Right, you get the opportunity to kind of say it the way you want to say it. Yeah, and even like in in baseball. Uh, I always say we're all standing on the shoulders of people before us. Like when I talk about data in baseball and things that I talk about, it's like, well, I learned them from someone. It's just, you know, you know, in music, you know, there's only so many combinations of chords you can do, you know? Right. Yeah. And we tend to think, you know, we tend to think that the best players in the game or the best, you know, quote unquote musicians on the planet were always originals. But if you ask them, they'll always tell you. Yeah. You know, you ask a guy like Eddie Vedder, you ask a guy like Paul McCartney, you know, who right. were his influences and Chuck Berry would have been his idol. Right. And, and a lot of the, there's no way to get to the promised land without building on the shoulders of giants before us. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to baseball, your fastball was typically 87 to 89, which would be low by today's standards, but you were very effective. And, and I, I, I feel strongly that if you pitch with command and, your your pitches are mixed well. Uh, you could be effective today. What do you think about uh, what made you so effective, and how how did you use your pitches together? You know, when I was growing up as a kid, um, you know, I, I threw to this tire that was uh, cemented on a bucket since I was probably seven. You know, and because the strike zone never moved, right? I didn't have a catcher there who could frame it or make or soften the blow on the outer edges. Yeah. Um, it was a very kind of finite strike zone, right? It was either you hit the tire or you don't. And uh, I don't know if that played a part in my command, but, you know, we always had a ball in our hand as well. You know, we were we were playing baseball year round and um, I was always a, a pretty athletic kid, you know, and you're just trying to find ways to be able to control that ball. And for me, it was 
thinking about how how am I going to have command and then how am I going to have like consistent shapes was was kind of a theme always in my in my mind was like how can I make my pitches move in the same direction all the time and how can I also have them land about where I want to and you know without that without that foundation there was no way I would have probably even played you know past you know maybe junior college or something but having that ability to do that at the high school level and was, you know, back then I was throwing 87, 89, we touched 90, 91, which is kind of where I lived my whole career. Um, right. They all thought I was going to be bigger and stronger and throw harder. I never really did. But what I, what I did was I, I kind of put um, a magnifying glass on the ability to try to disrupt the barrel of the bat. And so you took, you took the, the, the shape of the pitch, you took the, the combination of control and shape, shape of pitch, but also the unexpectedness of being able to pitch in odd counts by throwing in, you know, a right on right change up inside to a big, powerful right-hander who maybe he had never seen that before in his day. Right. And j- just mm-hmm. to be unorthodox in that way would give me an advantage on guys and just try to keep them off of balance. And that, and that was where I was going to have to live. Cause without that um, you know, if they could really pin me down to what I was going to throw, it was going to be very difficult to survive 87 to 89. Yeah. And like I always say, in order to do that kind of thing, you had to have a level of command because if you, I, I think a lot of people confuse command and control and guys with control that are throwing real hard, they're just spraying in the zone or around it. And command is being able to hit that spot like you described. And then the other layer of that, I think is, uh, I don't think it's talked enough about is how do you know what to throw? You know, like if you can command a pitch, how do you know what the right pitch to throw is? Like you just described throwing a change up to a big righty, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I think, um, you know, my father turned my brain on for strategy early on in life. And you talked about seeing me lift weights, maybe on YouTube or whatever. Um, yeah. I was a little kid, you know, I, I started in the weight room with my father at like about six. It was right when we started playing baseball and he just thought he's got hand-eye coordination. He can throw the ball across the infield like a 12 year old. And I never have played catch with him. Let me see if I can put him in the weight room that I know about. I can get him a little bit bigger and stronger. I think we can get him at least a free education in college. And that was really kind of the the birth of my baseball, you know, kind of career. And and we just took the game very seriously in a way that other people didn't. My father was going to the chiropractor. He was taking me to an acupuncturist. We were taking supplements. He was thinking about the game the way yeah, that thinks about the game now. And this yeah, is in the, <clears throat> the mid-80s, right? So it's it's a different time when people didn't really agree with with a lot of these philosophies but he was kind of ahead of his time in a lot of ways and um but what he did in that in in those moments in the weight room all those thousands of hours that we were spending time together was we were talking about strategy because in order to 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 squat 250 pounds as an eight-year-old weighing 60 pounds you gotta have it in your head too yeah and six months later you're also going to you're going to try to, you know, max out again one one more time that year. And you're, you're only going to be able to push five to 10 pounds more. And in order to get five to 10 pounds over six month period is not easy. And it takes, you know, what clothing are you wearing? You know, what did you eat the night before? Have you been carbo loading? You know, what yeah. kind of mind are you in? Like you said, you know, what, you know, how, how, how are you psyching yourself up for this one push, right? There's all these, these factors that played a part in me parlaying that into being a thinking thinking man's pitcher that kind of were seated in, in, in that weight room, trying to figure out how to push the most weight. Right. And I, I think that's a really big part of command too. Cause like I had done the same kind of things with my son, including uh, I had him taking a, I, I learned from studies that how effective beet powder was. 
And so we would put beet powder in a glass of, of bottle of water and he would drink it. And he always complained it's an awful tasting, right. but it was very healthy for him. Like we did things like that where, where people really weren't doing that. Uh, I guess I should meet your father one day. <laughs> <laughs> my father, my father actually passed away like three weeks ago, but. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, oh, it's I would have liked, I would like to have known him. Yeah, we had a good run, you know, and him and Scott Lovecamp, who was my scout, who you had on the show recently. Um, oh. You know, we, we all met when I was uh, a freshman in high school. And so Scott got to be around got the unusual kind of household of my father being having this weight room and having this batting cage, kind of a primitive mound in the yard and on this three and a half acres in Florida. And just, you know, watching him hit ground balls to me all these years. And, you know, we, we kind of made it happen, as you have with your son, kind of out of the backyard with really no... Yeah no guide, no, no rule book. And just kind of, I, I think that on the fly. I think that's maybe why Scott thought that you and I would hit it off because, you know, very similar story, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, as far as command goes, you know, it's hard, it's hard to put your finger on it sometimes. Cause you know, I think if you, if you look at a guy like John Stockton and, and what he did at the free throw line, you know, shooting 90 something percent for his career. And then you take a guy like Shaquille O'Neal. And in theory, you'd say, you'd probably say, you know, why can't Shaq shoot the same amount of free throws every day as John Stockton? And they should have similar results, but you know, some of this built into the machine a little bit, I think like running speed, I, I think athleticism, there, there, there's a certain amount of it that you can kind of improve upon, but I also think there's something there just from birth and the way they were bi biologically made from our parents. And sometimes people, you know, I think they believe that you can, teach command and I believe that you can improve upon it but I think there's some guys like a Greg Maddox that are just so far and away better than everyone else at doing that one thing that is it's an actual skill and sometimes we think we can we know we can't make a guy throw 10 miles an hour harder but we, sometimes we think we can just talk people into command and I'm not so sure that that's actually the case well yeah there may be something to it but I, I think a lot of it is in your head you know we talk about uh, Dorfman helping Maddox and also helping Halliday in this in the same way where they weren't getting good results and when they got their mind right uh, they pitched better. How would you say your mindset affects your pitching? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it probably affects it in every way. You know, all of us have kind of I think probably if you ask anybody who's been successful at the big league level, they probably have. You know, if you, I heard Adam Wainwright talking on on the playoff game the other night and he was articulating kind of the way that uh, he, he goes about pitching a little bit, or you can hear just little pieces of it kind of leaking out. And, and uh, I think we all approach it in a different way. I mean, you know, for, for instance, when we talk about command or, or um, you know, I always threw to an area that was kind of large, right? Like back in the day, people would say, well, you need to pick out this tiny little spot in the middle of the glove and look at the, the smallest spot. Cause if you miss small, you know, then you won't spray the ball so much. But for me, for me, it felt like it, it didn't feel comfortable. So I was kind of throwing to an area that I would say was probably a little larger than the glove, even though mm -hmm. I had good command, right? But that's what made me feel comfortable. That's how I perceived kind of throwing down this kind of tunnel. And But, uh, don't, but don't you think that uh, that held you accountable? Meaning that when a guy throw a bullpen, a lot of times the catcher moves a glove, he catches it. There's no accountability to hitting a spot. So when you had your your... Uh, tire you're throwing to and it didn't move if you didn't hit it you were there was some there was a result you didn't hit it whereas a, a catcher moved the glove he caught it yeah absolutely yeah not ha not having that buffer in a way of the guy being able to move a little bit and kind of miss his own and almost in a way 
trick yourself. I, I would kind of liken it maybe to going out to the driving range and we all go out to the driving range and hit golf balls. And as long as you're hitting it uh, solid and it's going kind of in the direction you want, you think, oh, I'm all good. But then as soon as you get on the course, you realize that alignment means everything, right? And if you miss by 10 yards, it's a decent shot, but it's not good enough to really be, you know, to really score, right? And kind of the same mm -hmm. way with pitching, I would think in a way, like throwing to that tire all those years, you're right. I believe that the, the non-movement of the tire gave me the ability to have instant results um, of me knowing, oh, I missed. I, I, I missed there. Like when it hits the glove and a guy can just kind of softly take it outside the zone, you're not really sure if you missed or not. And that probably did help me in those younger years. Yeah, and I would think that like when I focused with my son, we were focusing on uh, <clears throat> visualizing the target, throwing to it, and having just a, a focus on hitting the target. So uh, it seemed to me that focus had a lot to do with it, like no distractions, kind of blocking everything out. I mean, how did you deal with that, especially in a stadium with 30,000 people screaming? That has yeah. to be pretty hard to do. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I think probably the one thing that's the hardest thing is the hardest part is what's going on underneath your skin, not so much the external, right? So you've got fans and all these things, but they're kind of prodding your adrenaline. And, and in a lot of ways, if you watch the guys who are the best pitchers in the game, if you if you see them early on in a ball game get in trouble, you, you, you see that they can kind of weather that storm. And a lot of times what they're doing is having the ability to try to get out of a big inning early on in the game without a letting letting the outside ex external kind of factors spike that adrenaline to the point where they, they they exhaust themselves and kind of chew up two and three innings all at one time, right? And and mm -hmm. I, I had the ability to get comfortable in an uncomfortable environment. I think I, I learned that pretty, pretty early on. I don't know where that actually came from. I, I, I probably believe that, you know, the more that you believe in your skill set, the more that you're consistent inside your training, that you're consistent in your your bullpens, that you can consistently feel like you throw strikes, that breeds this type of um, confidence in you that you can then start pushing out the outside world. And in, even in an uncomfortable environment, you can find a way to kind of get a decent result. And I'm I'm learning that now with the guitar, you know, playing by myself. I played last night at a charity event and just having the microphone and a guitar and nothing to hide behind you know, it's taken me years to get more and more comfortable to where if let's say it doesn't sound so great, or I can't hear myself so well, because people are talking too loudly or whatever, you know, I still have found a way that I can give a decent product uh, musically without having to feel like that my surroundings are perfect. And so, you know, for me, it felt like if I could keep the adrenaline down, keep my heart rate down and just feel the same way on the mound as I do in a bullpen on the, in the game, even when it's second and third in the first inning in the playoffs against the Cardinals, you know, then I was going to have a better chance of kind of being the true Bronson Arroyo that everyone expects me to be on the mound. Well, what kind of uh, training did you do like in season, for example, like when you're doing a bullpen before a game or uh, uh, like, like what, what kind of training would you have done? Like, would you have thrown to a target or to a catcher? Or do, if you throw to a catcher, how would you throw to certain areas to yeah. work on your? So my most of my bullpens, I'd say for the last 50, probably the last 10, 11, 12 years of my career, you know, when you're when you're first getting to the major league level, no matter how much success you've had at the minor league level, you get to the big leagues and they always think that they know more. They always think that they can kind of tweak you a little bit. Right. And that happens. That's happened a lot, probably happened more in the old days. I think people are realizing now that that players get to the big league level because of what they've done already. Yeah. 
they kind of leave them alone a little bit more, or at least that's that's starting to be the thought process. And in my day, that really wasn't the thought process. It was like, oh yeah, we know you were good down there, but now we're going to show you how we do it, right? And that yeah. that idea made it very difficult because you'd come to the big league level, obviously playing against the best players in the world, the best lineups in the world. And now they're asking you to try to change a few things in the midst of already having success. And it made it, made it very difficult. But as years went on, I'd say in the last 10, 12 years, you know, my program in the bullpen would have been, I usually was throwing, I'd like to throw, first off, I like to throw soft, right? People don't talk about throwing soft very often. And I, I say this is one of the most important things. It, it's it's one of the, the largest links that made Bronson Arroyo who he was as a guy who didn't get hurt for 19 and a half seasons and made every start um, for, for having command and having the ability to get outs with less all stemmed from this one idea. Yeah. And I, the idea was if I could throw soft in the bullpen and still throw strikes and still give you that consistent shape on my, on my breaking ball or my sinker or whatever, what have you. Um, if I asked you to play darts, right. And, 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 and I said, let's hit the, let's hit the bullseye. And you would inevitably want to throw it a little stiff. It's just, it's the easiest way we think we can throw strikes. It's like with a little oomph on it. If then, if I asked you to throw it very soft with kind of an arc on that, on that dart, it would become much harder. And so I always felt like not only am I going to throw softer, it's going to less chance of getting hurt. It's going to warm me up easier. I can kind of move into throwing max effort, but also commanding the ball kind of softer is kind of a second pitch in a lot of ways. If I can throw you an 83 mile an hour sinker, first pitch to a lefty and get a ground ball to second base, that's something different than throwing it at 90, right? So yeah. I've got this, not only do I have now kind of a plan B for the times that it's, I feel terrible on the mound, it's crazy hot outside, I'm dead tired for whatever reason, things just aren't working, right? I have this plan B, but also in the bullpen, I'm constantly working on this feel. And when you throw the ball at 90 at max effort, that's a strike and there's a certain feel that comes off your hand. But then if I say back that down to 83, like I said, it's kind of a different feel. You've got to kind of like work on this. And so the whole time I really enjoyed throwing bullpens where I would hit the same spot five and six times with different velocities of the same pitch. And then I would move to the other side of the plate and I would slowly do that. And that was kind of the way that I kind of nailed down my command, this back and forth ability to kind of throw soft, hard, soft, hard with the same shape of pitch, but not make it feel like I was uncomfortable doing it. Oh, what that's awesome. Now, what kind of combinations did you like to throw? Like, for example, did you have setups like, you know, with various pitches that you would throw? Um, you mean for a specific batter or just in the bullpen? Well, oh, or, or for a batter or in a bullpen, maybe it's the uh, both. You know, I never, I never thought of any of my pitches. I think part of what made me who I was, was I never thought of any of my pitches as a priority, right? I didn't, I never bought into the idea yeah. that you had to throw 70% fastballs. Like you would hear that in my day. And I know now that they know that the breaking ball is a little easier to uh, harder to hit and put in play. And guys are throwing many yeah. more breaking balls than they have yeah, in the past. Like like I described my son who's thrown like 55% sliders that right. works for him. You right. know, that didn't happen. That didn't happen back in my day very often. And people yeah. would tell me that that was wrong back then in the nineties and in the two thousands. And now they're coming to find out through technology that, Hey, yeah. it's actually a pretty good strategy. Right. Well, I, I just, I look kind of learned that on the fly my own without knowing what the results actually were, but I never wanted to feel pinned down to having to throw a specific pitch in a specific count just because somebody said that was the thing to do. So yeah. you know, I was always thinking, 
the most outside the box. Can I throw a 3-1 backdoor breaking ball to a lefty and make it 3-2 without him swinging? Can I throw that inside, like I said, right on right change up to Albert Pujols? You know, these ideas um, made me feel like there wasn't a certain sequence that I had to get people out with. And so there really, for me, there was no formula at all. It was my eyes telling me what's going on with this batter. Can I beat him to the to the, to the the spot in this chess match? And can I get him to hit the ball not on the sweet spot of the bat, right? I wasn't trying to make him miss all the time. Sometimes you were. But, you know, you hear now that, you know, obviously the best defense is if the guy doesn't put the ball in play. They know that now. If the guy puts the ball in play, he has a better chance to get to first base. But if I'm a starting pitcher and I want to do my job and I want to get deep in the ball game, I'm going to have to have some balls put in play because I need some quicker right. outs. And so for me, it was about getting that soft contact and not so much just missing the bat. I 100% agree. Like, for example, when my son pitches, he throws three pitches and three ground outs. I'm cheering on. I mean, I love that. You know, okay. now, meanwhile, they're, they're, like you said, they want to have three strikeouts. It's like, well, you can't get in, deep in a game, like you said, and help your, your team win if you're, you know, getting knocked out in the third inning because you use up all your pitches, you know. Right. And there's and, you know, there there, there obviously is evidence. To, to state that, you know, if we have four guys in a bullpen and are throwing 95 to 100 and the third time through the lineup, we bring each one of these guys in, you don't get a chance to see them the second time that 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 formula can work as well. But just purely thinking of it from a standpoint of the starting pitcher wanting to do his job and feeling like he's contributed to the ball club. You know, I, 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 I wanted to get into the seventh inning. If I got into the seventh inning, I felt good about my job, you know. If I was pitching five and a third, I was totally dissatisfied every night. If that was even even if you won the game, I mean, five and a third just didn't feel like you'd done your part. And and um, I, I that's one thing about today's game that would probably frustrate me a little bit. And I would probably hope that I was pitching for a guy like Dusty Baker who would who would allow you to have the ball in your hand a little bit longer if you were doing your job. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the other biggest things that I like to talk about is uh, I think it's very important is that uh, being you. Uh, like you said earlier, is that too often they try to change you without realizing the reason they made it to that level is because of what qualities they had. And that if they try to make a pitcher pitch like certain categories of other pitchers, they will never find out if how a Bronson Arroyo could be a great pitcher because they would never let him be him. Yeah. You know, I, I, what, I talk, I've, I've talked many, many times with, with Scott Lovecamp who, you know, he thinks about baseball more than any person I've ever been around. And he's obviously, you know, thought about, he probably he's can, awesome. tell stats, he can tell you about stats about pitchers for the last 20 years that, you know, would just blow my mind. And, and even then he'll tell you when he was a double A pitching coach, there were things that he was telling people that he completely disagrees with today, completely. Like he wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And this is for a guy who, who does nothing but think about the game of baseball. And so, you know, sometimes we just make mistakes and, and, and you hope that the next generation learns from it and we can kind of, you know, let people be themselves. There's something, there's something very innate about the way you tie your shoes, about the way you, the, the gait that you walk with and all of those things play a part in athleticism. And, and a lot of times I think you're better off leaving the guy kind of the way he is as long, as long as I, I only have two rules. One is, can you throw strikes? And two, does your arm not hurt? That's it. If those two things can happen, then I'm all for guys pitching any way they can. Yeah, to me, it's are you getting outs with the least amount of uh, pitches and least amount of runs, you know? Right. Uh, I think a lot of times guys lose uh, sight of the goal of the pitcher, which is to get out. They're so enamored with how I, I threw hard or I got so much break on my pitch. And it's like, well, that's great, but 
did you get the guy? I, I have a cartoon that I sent around a bunch of friends, and it's a guy uh, standing there with an iPad. And he goes up to another guy and says, hey, my vertical break was negative 19. Uh, velocity was 92.7. And, I, you know, my pace was, you know, 4.7 seconds, blah, blah, blah. And the guy says, did you win? And the guy stares at him blankly. You know, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, like a lot of times people will talk about process. And I agree, you have to have a process to, to develop. But they also forget to have a feedback loop on the process, which is do your results kind of feed your process. You have a loop to know how to adjust your process. And if you never have that feedback loop, you never know if your process is actually a good process. So you could be developing uh, the most spin or the most break or the most velo, uh, but if you're not winning, well, what's the point, right? Yeah, I I, to I totally agree. I mean, I, I, obviously in this generation that's playing right now, got, there's more guys throwing 95 to 100 than we've ever seen. I mean, I can remember coming into um, you know a stadium and and guys literally coming out to watch Rob Nen close out a game for the Giants because he was throwing 99 to 100 and he had a slider at 90 and it was like watching an alien pitch at the time. And yeah. now now there's three of those guys in every bullpen. So we obviously understand that. You know, like you said, the bar has been set and, and and just continues to get better and better and better. But I've always felt like, um, you know, a lot of times you hear stories of, of how, how can we improve pitching at the minor league level? So when these guys get to the big league level, they're ready. And it, there's so many guys who throw 95 to 100 now who've averaged, you know, a four and a half or a five ERA at the minor league level. And they get to the big league level. It stays right about that. And their stuff is so good. You can't understand why. And, and I often think, you know, if you did want to pitch at the big league level and let guys go five innings, strike about strike out as many guys as they can, miss the bat as much as they can, and then we're going to go to our guys in the bullpen, that would be fine if you if you gave them the ability to get deep in the ball game at the minor league level. But when you take a minor leaguer from the rookie league on and you kind of limit him to five innings every time all the way up to the big league level, and he's never expanded upon that, it never gives him the ability to, to, to do the thing that I was talking about, which is conserve energy, pitch soft, get outs with other things without the pedal to the metal. And, and so for me, if I'm running an organization, I'm making the guys at the rookie league level believe they're going to go nine every night. Right. Because I want you to start slow. If you already throw 95 to 100 and we know we have arm problems and we know that we have um, problems with guys getting deep in ball games and conserving some energy, I want to make them believe that I want them to start this race slow as a marathon, not a race. And if you if you start that marathon at the lower levels and then as we move up into double A AA and triple A, you start saying to them, hey, we're going to start tightening it down. And now we're actually only going to go six instead of getting deeper in the ball game, I would, I would think that you would give them the two ends of the spectrum, which would give them some kind of things to lean on when they get to the big league level in different scenarios. But it doesn't happen like that. They're constantly keeping them short, short, short at the minor league level and short at the big league level. So they only know one way to kind of pitch. And I, I think it's a disservice to the, to the guys in, in the minor leagues to not allow them to feel what it's like to start the race slow and get deep in the ball game and learn how to, how to pitch in that manner. Yeah, I, I think you're right. But I, I think, uh, like we were talking earlier, the, the Yankees kind of recognize that. And uh, like with my son was brought up and drafted as a, a reliever, but they saw that when he relieved, he was always going three, four five innings. So they turned him into the starter. Right. Then he did very well. 
And then last year they decided to see, well, how many innings can you get? And he threw, I think, the most quality starts of any minor leaguer in something like 10 years or something. So he crushed it. Uh, so they're kind of recognizing that, you know, hey, if we can get guys go deep in innings with a, a quality start, it's worth it, right? The reason I started this show was that many people throw hard nowadays, like you said. And I thought, well, what separates the guys at the high level now? I think it's command, you know, like a lot of guys throw 95 to 100, uh, but a lot of guys at 95 to 100 get released all the time. The guys that stay, I think, are the guys who can command the ball. Uh, they have, they can mix speeds. They have something other than just throwing hard. And, yeah. and that's why I also started the show. I think, you know what, I, I think the perfect kind of, uh, example of that is the guy that I played with was Pedro Martinez right and you think you know wow. why was Pedro so unbelievably dominant especially like in those late 90s years and and he's got he's got command he's got a variety of pitches he can throw yeah so inside of that command and he also has some some very small things like intimidation right a mystique about him right there's there's all these factors that he's building into this one pie and yeah. like you said if a guy throws extremely hard, but he's all over the place, I always, I always kind of liken it to this. If I, if I played paintball, if we, if we played paintball and I had a gun that always, it always curved to the right, the ball always curved to the right. I can make an adjustment and I could still, you know, get some kills. But if I have a, if I have a gun that shoots to the right once and the left once, you are just, you're just, you know, you, you don't know where to start, right? You're just kind of dead in the water. And if you do get a kill, it's going to be pure luck. And so, you know, having the ability, no matter how hard you throw, to make those consistent shapes and to have command, like you said, is without question the foundation of everything. And if you want to see the difference between a Max Scherzer and a guy who throws 94 to 98 like Max does, but doesn't have command, you're going to find a Hall of Famer and you're going to find a guy who played a, a few years in the big leagues. And that comparison is so far apart that it shows you how large command is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you said shapes, too, because I uh, I started working with uh, baseball when uh, my son went to DBU and I saw a track man. And so I wrote uh, some software that major league teams use. And I wrote a book then called Applied Technology and Pitching. And I was describing how to use the data to uh, to create pitches that would work well together. And one of the way I, I described pitches was a shape because like you said in my mind a pitch had a shape it was not just a speed it was a a shape in the air and I, how i wanted that pitch to match with another pitch like when i saw your pitching the locations that you threw with your pitches are perfect for for your shapes you know like if you wouldn't throw high in the zone you would throw low in the zone you would you know that kind of strategy is something that i don't think is talked enough about like when you throw your changeup or your sinker or uh, your curveball, like, uh, did you have locations that you preferred? Um, with my off-speed stuff, yeah, I, I think. Well, you know, it's you're you're blend you're blending a lot of times what the strengths and weaknesses of the hitter are. You know that uh, in a, in a lot of ways, it's like if you can consistently command the ball with the shape that you want and kind of in the area that you want, that's kind of on my end of the spectrum and then on their end of the spectrum it's like what do these guys hit well you know so if i if for instance if i could throw you know if i thought my changeup was best suited down and away to most lefties but then a guy like lance berkman just absolutely could destroy the ball in the outer half of the plate yeah. then i'd have to start thinking 
in a different way. And that's when you start getting into some of those uncomfortable feelings of like, can I throw an inside changeup to Lance Berkman and get away with that, right? And it's so unorthodox. Sometimes you're not sure if you can. And you have to just sometimes go into a game and just kind of have enough balls to to try it out on the fly. I can remember, I remember having lunch with with Scott, my scout, and we were we were having lunch before I pitched to the Phillies uh, game two of of that first series in 2010. So we got no hit by Roy Halladay in the first game of the playoffs. And I started game two. And um, Scott told me that he had been scouting the Phillies for the Yankees the last couple of months go, leading into the playoffs. And he said, I think that you can get inside on Chase Utley with a with a with a changeup. And that was such an unusual pitch. There's probably no righty in the game who'd want to come on the inner half with him having that super quick bat and being that close on a plate with an inside changeup. But we used it that game and I got a couple of outs with it. But, you know, that was part part of who I was, was somebody who could take something into a game on a fly like that and and, and see if it would work yeah, and cut the waters. Yeah, because you had command of it then, you know, so... You, know, you felt confident enough you could do that. I was going to ask you though, when you talked about writing that data um, with 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 that with the shapes and, and how you would build pitches upon pitches, was there, was there something in that data that was a surprise? Was there a combination of two pitches that you wouldn't have thought off the top of your head would have made sense together that then the data? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too because I, I wrote a second book uh, called Baseball Pitches, uh, a data definition. Uh, and what I had done was I, I was frustrated by uh, they were tagging pitches incorrectly. So when you had data on a guy's sliders, uh, there would be a whole bunch of, uh, you know, change-ups and sinkers and odd, oddball pitches in there. And it skewed the data on the slider. So I came up with a way of um, uh, a, a group of formulas that you can apply to the data and it would automatically tell you what the pitch was based upon the shape and my, and I start the book off by saying that I'm defining pitches based upon how they moved in space, not by how the pitcher threw them. Meaning that the pitch, I, that the pitcher's intent has nothing to do with the pitch, the way it should be tagged. Okay. And so that, you're saying that if a guy throws a slider, but it backed up down and into a righty, you would actually note it as a sinker. Yeah, I would, or, or depending how it would come out, the data would tell you what it was so that, uh, that was part of it because one of the things I wanted to find out was when guys got older, I noticed that uh, pitchers that got older, their velo went down and they still had great results. And and I wanted to know why. And and what I noticed right away was when I applied those formulas, uh, actually when I applied the formula, instead of using a 2D graph, uh, the formulas didn't work for like six months. I was figuring out why. And, I, and finally I put them into a 3D graph. I'll show you later. And in a 3D graph, all of a sudden I could see the separation between the dots, you know, the plots of the pitches. Yeah. And I could see, oh, these are different pitches now. Whereas you've looked at them in 2D, you have pitches here and here, they look the same. Now you spin it 3D, now you see, oh, they're different pitches. And what I did was I noticed by that, the, the guys that threw softer as they got older had good results because each of their pitches were different enough from each other so that it's like even when they missed their location, which is kind of like what you were talking about, they still got a good result. And I was wondering why. And it was because their pitches were different enough from each other that it, it missed the bat, basically, or the sweet spot of the bat. You know, And so I made a thing called uh, – it's called a boil pitch wheel. 
I had to make a name for it. And it, it comes from the, like a the idea of a color wheel. And it applies the pitches to this wheel. And so you can really easily see where a guy's pitches are on this wheel to know that they're separated. And if they're too much, two of them are too close to each other, it's like they're too similar. You're not going to have a good result with that. Yeah, it's uh, what, really do, what do you think of that kind of thing? Like, was your pitches different enough for each other? That Did that make them effective? Or what do you think made you so effective? You know, it was hard. I, I think I think the ability to... I think the ability to, to work, like you said, in, in 3D, right? So a lot of times when we talk about pitching, we talk about in and out, up and down, and you, you rarely hear guys talk about front to back, right? Which is yeah. turning the box the other way. And I felt like I did a good job of not only being able to have command on both sides of the plate and, you know, change change you thinking left and right in and out but also front to back yeah throw a breaking ball at 68 and also throw that same shape at 78 you know it's two different pitches and a lot of times i can remember i had a good conversation with uh, matt belisle who was a relief pitcher for many many years with the colorado rockies the reds bunch of teams and as as he went on in his career he he got better and better um and it was kind of his rookie year, I think, when I got here to Cincinnati in 2006. And he asked me, he said, you know, in the scouting report, it said not to throw that guy a breaking ball. And you threw him a first pitch breaking ball anyway and got an out. Why did you do that? And I said, well, you know, I gave him a breaking ball, but he was probably expecting a 75 mile an hour breaking ball. And I gave it to him at 67. Right. So I was giving him what his eyes wanted to see, but in a speed that he wasn't ready yeah. for it you could still get them off the sweet spot of the bat and some of that stuff needed to be done to get deep in a ball game and then exploit the real the real weakness of the guy that you wanted to explore but you weren't going to be able to get him out three and four times in a row the same way so i was trying to find creative ways to get off the barrel of the bat you know moving back and forth and not just in and out and so i think that when you like you like you said put the box in 3d when you put my pitches in 3d it made it more difficult for guys to yeah, kind of it separates them here here's two pitches now now it is two they're completely different yeah it's like using another dimension you know you have pe people worrying about left and right and location but now you got changing speeds you know? absolutely and i and i think that's part of a part of what i get a little frustrated by watching kind of the five inning 95 to 100 mile an hour guy who only throws a fastball and a, and a slider that goes straight down you know, there's so many of those guys in the game right now. And I just, you know, I, I, I just hate the fact that there's not enough creativity there. And I know that the, the powerful stuff can still work. But the problem is, is when you take that powerful stuff that's kind of one dimensional in a way or two dimensional, let's say it's not three dimensional, right? Yes. Um, that, that two dimensional, very powerful guy, if he's having a bad day with command with, with one of those two pitches, he, he doesn't have a third one to lean on. You know, he also... If, if, if he doesn't have his best fastball because now he's 37 years old, like you said, you don't have another avenue, another road, another way to get these outs. And so what I'm, I feel like is going to happen with this generation is you're going to have a bunch of guys who have really good careers for like three and four and five years, and then they're going to vanish from the game. And they're just going to replace them with somebody else who throws 95 to 100. And it's going to be very difficult to find a guy who, who threw through even 2000 innings, you know, at the big league level. And sometimes I feel like that's just a shame because I think that, you know, I never, I never believe that the athletes of the next generation are getting worse. They're always getting better. It's just sometimes about what we're teaching them and the way that we believe that they should go about their business. And I, I wish there was more guys who threw 95 to 100 who would have 
an idea that they could tweak something like a Clayton Kershaw three, four years into his career and extend this thing out for the next decade, still getting outs in a different way. Guys aren't given the opportunity sometimes to try those creative different ways. You know, I think batters are really catching up to, to velocity as well. So throwing 95 is not like it was when, uh, you know, when you started. Right. You know, so guys are seeing 95 to 100 all the time and they're hitting it all the time. So the game is kind of going to have to adapt. I think it's going to swing back to around to uh, more command. Uh, I think you need velocity, command. I, I think you need to read batters. So on the show, I've been kind of promoting the idea. It's like, all right, don't just try to throw harder. You ought to try to have more command, sequencing, your mental game. Uh, Another big one for me is character, which I wanted to get into you because uh, you're well known for being a great teammate, all right? And uh, my son had done an interview once that really struck me. And he was saying that in junior uh, college, they're competing for a spot, uh, and he wasn't rooting for or against his fellow pitchers. He was kind of indifferent. He was just focusing on himself. Then he got to DBU, and... Uh, there they were teaching them to, to be in with your teammates, root for them, cheer for them, help them. And, and he did, and genuinely did. And he carried that into the minor leagues, and he's done that there too. And he was saying, well, in the minor leagues, everyone is frustrated. They're trying to get ahead. It's hard. You know you've been there. And he said, when I did that, it just made it so much easier for me and them because then they cheer for me. And it's like a, a cycle of, uh, you know, that kind of character, I think, matters a lot, you know, and, and that's something you're known for. <laughs> yeah, kind of paying, paying it forward in a way, yeah, and and and, and receiving the, the back end of that. I, I definitely prescribed to that my whole career, you know, it was kind of who I was as a kid. I was, I was, um, I would say unusual in a way that I was, I was aware of my surroundings as a kid and how to deliver some joy for somebody else before myself. Um, not that I wasn't taking care of myself, but but, you know, I could always look around and if I always felt value in being able to look at somebody and say, hey, man, are you thirsty? You want a glass of water? Like to be able to, to, to ask someone that question and kind of nail it down. Right. It always meant something to me. And and so in the minor leagues, I, I was always a good teammate. I was, you know, from from the very beginning in the rookie league, there's guys who like an Aramis Ramirez, who had an amazing career, 15 years in the big leagues, maybe more, you know, borderline Hall of Famer, great third baseman for a lot of teams. You know, he'll probably tell you he don't even make it to the big leagues if it's not for Bronson, because I took these guys to the grocery store, rented them their furniture, took them to the ballpark every single day, translated. Yeah, I've heard them. stories like that. You were awesome. And in, in those early years, it was more important because we had no money and guys, you know, that us obviously on the from the Latin side didn't understand the language. So it was hard for them to get around town and rent an apartment and find ways to sign leases and stuff. And so. You know, as years went on, it got easier actually to do less work because guys then understood and they had more money and they had some help around. But but in those early years, there's no doubt in my mind that when I got on the mound, that my defense was playing, you know, as focused as they possibly could behind me because of the joy and the and, and kind of the giving of myself to them in ways that maybe they weren't feeling from other people. And that all that all plays a part, like you said, in in character of like your word meaning something and kind of showing up for for your teammates. Um, yeah. You know, have have an integrity. I believe all of that stuff without question um, lengthens a career. It doesn't make a career, but if you're a guy who might only play seven years in the big leagues and, and a perfect example is I'm 40 years old. 
I've had two surgeries. I'm throwing 83 to 85 miles per hour. And I have three offers from major league baseball teams. That wouldn't have happened for hardly anybody else because of who I was inside the locker room. And it was all about character. Yeah. I, I think it's really important. Like you see teams like uh, I won't say that have great stars on them and they don't uh, really succeed. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with this, what team chemistry, what, how the team, you see scrappy teams come together like the D-backs recently, you know, and they do right. really well. And I, I think it's a lot of that is character and how, how they play as a team. Yeah. And, 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 and like we said, you know, we're building on the shoulders of giants. Teams are getting better and better at these fine points. I can remember I got chewed out a couple of times for taking naps before I started games. Now every major league team has a nap room, right? So we're learning mm. from the mistakes of the past. And that goes along with the character. If you watch the interviews of young guys in the game now, and that's not, it's not every guy, but I'm going to say, a lot more than there used to be. These guys are articulating the real, real, you know, reasons why they're being successful, the things that are important. I can't remember off the top of my head, the starter for the Marlins, um, Latin kid, really clean cut, had a, had a really good game in the playoffs. Um, and they, they had him in the, in the, um, in the dugout after he came out of the game after like seven innings and he was talking and Wayne Wright was doing the game with AJ Pruszynski on Fox and his interview was an absolute masterclass in describing the important things that got him to that point to have a good successful night that night. And in the old days, you used to watch interviews and it'd be a bunch of cliche things. And yeah. guys, guys are getting better at what they do across the board. And, and that, that is why sports always continues to go up and up because it's not just about the physical part but about taking care of yourself, about taking care of your money, about being better with your family, you know, all the things that come along with giving a, an interview after the game and, and all facets. Yeah, I know, like, with my son, whenever they're going to <clears throat> minor league games, uh, he's always out there as long as it takes signing things. Because I would always tell him that the reason you get to play this game is because of those people there, you know. So when a guy is standing in line to, for an autograph, smile be happy because that's why you're you're able to do what you're doing you know yeah absolutely and and to, and to be fair too you know there's a lot of people that think that you know if you're playing in the minor leagues for one that you're making a lot of money which you obviously know is not yeah the you're not you know when i tell people that i was you know you're a double a triple a knocking on the door playing in the big leagues and you're making five six seven thousand dollars a year and you're paying for your own way to <laughs> live around the country they're 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 boggled by that but you know just the ability to to kind of you know to, to to bring joy to other people in 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 for a long period of time and and to be somebody who's can you know we talk about consistent command consistent personality matters right yeah yeah if, that that's kind of what I'm getting at yeah yeah consistent personality matters and if and and if you're gonna be a grumpy guy every day and you're always consistent that's better than being up and down but but if you can be consistently joyful and bring that joy to people, sometimes people will look at you like, Man, is this real? Is this fake? I'm not sure. Is this an act? But over years and over time, people becoming your teammate, they realize that you're bringing something very beautiful to the table and it can propel you into places that you, you didn't think that it would help. Yeah, I mean, I found that with the you, you've seen some of the people I've had on the show. And what I've been finding was that. Uh, one of my good friends, Scott Emerson, he's with the A's, the pitching coach. He hooked me up with a lot of guys. And I was telling him the other day, it's like, uh, it's really funny. Every guy here introduces me to, I hit it off with like 
I could just hang out and have a beer with this guy and talk baseball for hours. I said, why is that? And he said, well, they're just genuine baseball dudes. Like, I actually had a call with uh, uh, Billy Wagner the other day. And he's talking to me like just a regular guy. He doesn't know me. I'm just some schmuck. You know, he doesn't know. But he treated me like a regular person. What a nice guy. And I was thinking, well, here's probably one of the top two closers of all time and just a genuine guy. And I think that kind of quality is – I see that in you as well. I think that kind of quality helps. That's, it has to have something to do with that success. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's something else that I, I also would ascribe to some, some success, at least for myself is, is kind of having the ability to, to keep life simple as well. Right. Like, you know, you talk about character. You, if you map that character across your all 365 days, you're having to deal with possibly kids, you know, your wife, your in-laws, you know, tickets, you know, all these things that kind of come along with being a major league baseball player and the travel and everything is a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. And, I've found that the guys who could keep the game a little bit simple and not have a restaurant on the side or just be distracted, you know, you've got to have enough energy to kind of feed your own machine in a lot of ways. And if you, and, and if you keep that a little bit simple, I have found that guys can extend their career a little bit. I've seen some guys get kind of pushed out of the game by, by focusing too much energy outside of the game on other things that they could have used inside the locker room and, and also not realizing that, you know, the game goes by very quickly. And even if you're fortunate enough to play a decade in the big leagues, which only about a thousand people have done, right? If you can do that for 10 years, um, you've had a, a, you know, a magical career, but it's still going to go by in the blink of an eye. And you're still going to have 40 or 50 years to live after the game. And so sometimes I really like to say to guys like, hey, man, just, you know, keep it simple, man. Act like you're in the minor leagues. Just live in an apartment. Just pay your rent. Have one car and drive it. Go to the ballpark. Focus on your body. Focus on your teammates. Focus on winning. Do this. It's only going to last a certain amount of time. And when you're outside of the game, you can you can build a mansion with the bowling alley if you've made enough money. And you can drive seven cars if you want to. But while you're playing the game, it just becomes a distraction. And I think that kind of plays into that character thing. And, um, you know, you wish... You wish you could you could stamp that onto some people, and I have definitely seen the evolution of that. Their guys are getting better and better at doing those things. I, I remember uh, my son, like I said, had started playing baseball in high school, second year. Then he gets uh, a scholarship to DBU his junior year. And what I told him was, I said, you know, the DBU is a pretty good school, and I said, you know what, just go in the stands and sit back by yourself, no one there, just take it all in. Just be, just appreciate that you're there because you are so lucky to be even be playing at a college. And so he would do that now and then. And every now and then he'd be up in the stands by himself and the coaches would come out in the morning and like, Boyle, what are you doing up there? He's uh, just taking it in, coach. Like I was telling him to, like you said, you're only there for a little while appreciate what opportunity you've got, make the most of it, help other people when you're there. Because uh, like you said, it's you're going to be out of there eventually. So make the most of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, you know, I think as much competing in the game and trying to get outs is, is just kind of a being part of that brotherhood, being part of, you know, you hear it all the time when people retire, you know, the things they miss the most is really the people that they worked with. Right. And, and human beings are so much more interesting than, than inanimate objects, right? You could have all the cars you want, but they don't talk back to you. And, you know, being a good teammate and, 
doing all those things you're talking about, you know, and extending that, that boys club, like how long can you stay in the boys club? That's, you know, when you're, when you're a little kid, you dream of pitching in the major leagues. And um, if you get the opportunity to do it, the longer you can, uh, you know, successfully keep that healthy, it really, um, you know, it satiates you in a lot of ways. You know, I'm, I'm very content not playing baseball and really even thinking about baseball a lot of times these days, sometimes because I felt like I, I, I wrung every drop of, of, of what I had in my body and I got it out in, in, on the field, you know, had I, had I felt like I short-sighted myself in some way and my career ended at 32 instead of 40, I would have, I would have, it would have been gnawing at me. And, and, and a lot of um, the joy in life after the game, you know, for me at least is the fact that I could put that to bed in a way that I felt like I came to do what I did and, and we got the job done. And a lot of these things we're talking about, these subtleties, these character things um, played a huge part in that. Yeah, and, and you crushed it 16 years. You know, most guys don't ever get to the major leagues, let's stay, let alone play for 16. Right. Uh, how would you describe a complete pitcher? Like, what kind of qualities would you think a complete pitcher needs to have? Um, you know, we talked about the basics. Uh, we're talking about command. We're talking about consistency of shape. Um, we're talking about the ability to handle uncomfortable positions and get yourself comfortable in them. And that includes, you know, being emotionally kind of consistent, right? Being able to go out on the mound and start the first inning with an umpire that's not calling balls and strikes the way you want them to. And to have the ability to not look flustered, to not show up your teammates or show the umpire up or let the other team know that your feathers have been ruffled, right? To me, a complete guy is he's, He's got some mystery to him. He's like tough to figure out. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't feel like um, you feel like he's a nice guy when you saw him in the outfield the day before, but when he's on the mound, there's a little bit of a mystique to him. It doesn't have to be intimidation, but it's got to be something where you don't feel so comfortable with him. Um, right. So you, so you've got command, you've got consistent shape of pitch. You've got the ability to hold down emotionally and, and, and you're not getting flustered by guys. And maybe you've got a bit of mystique about you. I think, that is a complete pitcher for me, a guy who can then take those four skills and map that onto the mound 32 times a year and give the team a chance to win 20 times, give you 20 quality starts a year. That is the formula for me that allows that to happen. And it, it, inside of that, the, the biggest one to the whole thing is health, right? Like you got to have a healthy arm. So inside of that is also a complete pitcher is a guy who has a program off the field who allows him to pitch every fifth day without pain and can, and, and can tow the rubber. What would you say is the best baseball advice you ever got? The best baseball advice I probably ever got was probably non non baseball would have would have been um, kind of be yourself uh, for the things that you like to do away from the field, right? Uh -huh. If you're the type of guy who wants to watch the Discovery Channel and, and eat a pizza in the evening and and be with his wife, do it. If you're the guy who likes to go out to the bar and have a couple of beers, and and um, can do that in a healthy way, then do it. You know, like you've got to kind of be the guy you are away from the field that, that you need to be. Don't try to be someone else. We hear it all the time on the field, right? It's like, you can't pitch like somebody else. You can, you need to use your skill set in the best way you can. Well, off the field is the same way. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to drive a Rolls Royce just because all your teammates are doing it. If you want to drive a Toyota 4Runner, drive a Toyota 4Runner, right? And, and, and being yeah. that authentic person takes a little bit of stress off you because you're not faking anything, right? And when you don't have to fake, right. it's less work. So that probably the best advice I ever got, which was um, um, actually from an old Yankee pitching coach that we had the same um, 
we had the same uh, agent when I was when I was in the rookie league. And that was the, before I went to the rookie league. That was the first advice I got. And that really, you know, it probably would have been who I was anyway. Like I would have been probably authentic because it was easy for me. But but that was a nice piece of advice that that I that I got early on. I love that because uh, before every game, I text my son, uh, good luck, be you, command and mix. Same thing. And he knows what I mean by BU. It's like their guys throwing on 99, you pitch like you pitch, you know. Uh, I'm a big believer in that, that you should be yourself. Uh, and, and again, on and off the field, that's a great uh, way to put it too because I don't really put it that way. Right. And I think – I also think that, you know, probably the when 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 parents ask me, give me some advice for a kid now, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, beat yourself up over missing your preparation, but don't beat yourself up for failures on the field, right? Because if you if you're if you're not taking care of your body, you're missing meals, you're not getting consistent sleep, you know, you're you're you miss a practice, whatever that is, you know, you cannot miss in preparation. It's too easy right? Like there's no, there's no excuse for missing preparation unless you're sick, right? And if you do that, then I think you can go to war on the field, knowing that you're not going to be successful all the time and still walk away from it, not feeling like you've got to carry this, this baggage with you, right? There's too many guys who get beat on the field and you see it with kids all the time. They take it home with them and they live with this negativity on their shoulder. You've got to have the ability to wipe it off. And I think the easiest way to do that is to know that you're doing the best you can in preparation. So that way, when you do get beat on the field in the game, you can just say, Hey, we'll get them next time. And, and I, I think for kids, that is huge. Yeah. I used to always say that the result on game day is a result of the weeks and months before. So, you know, you right. know, how well you did that day is how well you prepared. And, and sometimes and, and sometimes you just have to say, hey, maybe the guy on the right. other side prepared better than me or maybe it was just his day. Right. You just have to yeah. you have to know that if you're a great hitter, you only win 30 percent of the time. You've got to build that into the program. And that's why I used to love going into baseball seasons with a with the idea, people would say, what are your goals this year? My one goal was to, to give the team 20 quality starts. That's it, because yeah. I kept it simple. If I gave him 20 quality starts, I knew my ERA would be decent. I knew yeah. the team, my everything else would fall into place if I gave him those 20 quality starts. And so to keep it simple, um, that that's what my mindset would be to, to start a season. Yeah, I, I love that because that, that's actually one of my goals too, was not to throw the hardest, get the most strikeouts. It's like if you get the most quality starts, you're doing the best job that you can to get your team a chance to win. Right. Absolutely. And, and to me, that's the goal is your team has to win. So, you know. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, in the old days, people say, you know, people only care about velocity these days. People have always only cared about velocity. It's part it's part of the human condition to be like, oh, I've got speakers that are X amount of loud and, and, and somebody makes a speaker that's even louder. Right. Like we, we always want bigger and faster and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what you find is that if you can't find contentment, right, then you're always you're always looking for that next thing. And so you've got to be content. I tell high school kids, hey, however, whatever size your nose is, it is what it is, man. Like you, you can complain about mm -hmm. it all day, but it ain't going nowhere, right? However tall you are, it is what it is. You better get content with what you have. And so if you can be content throwing 87 to 89 and still getting outs, you are taking some of the distraction away from the fact of trying to be like everybody else or throw hard. Exactly. Or exactly. Anyway. So you've got to, you've got to be joyful 
of the type of player you are. And, you know, when people would say, oh, Bronson, man, we face you, man. You just throw a bunch of junk up there. You throw all this soft stuff. Yeah, a lot of times, man, that was the only thing I was going to That's what wins. Proud of that. I was proud of that. I'm getting yeah. 68, man. You know, like that's just what I have to do to, to get the job done. Yeah, it's like be you, uh, take what you do good at and be great at it. Don't try to be the other guy. I'm that's totally what I believe in. You know, and I think uh, and part of the reason starting the show was uh I, I was trying to promote use of the command tracker target I sell, but also I was finding that people were focusing too much on just velocity, and I wanted to have a show that explored the different things that you need to succeed and so when kids or minor leaguers or college guys are watching the show that they know well if you don't throw 95 doesn't mean you can't have a successful career you can you just need to bring up the other levels too you know absolutely and and you know from from a standpoint of the people who are are, are calling the kids up to the major league level i've seen i've also seen in that time when we talk about bigger faster stronger you know everybody wants this velocity, I, I, I've heard out of GM's mouths, you know, yeah, Bronson Roy is a pretty good minor league pitcher, but he's probably not going to do that at the big league level because he doesn't throw quite hard enough, right? We've all heard that in every generation and it's still going on. As you said, your son is not a hard thrower and he's probably not going to get as many opportunities as the guys throwing 95 to 100, right? But but if you're consistent, you consistently can win ball games. I think that you have a chance for people to, to um to, to, to take you seriously. And I hope that the evolution of the mentality of the front offices is going to eventually catch up to where they can finally like say velocity doesn't matter. Cause every guy who's worth their salt in the game will tell you that, but it's very hard to live it when you're pulling the trigger on players. Well, it, just, it comes, it comes down to what you were saying. It's, it's hard to be yourself and be true to yourself. And a lot of those guys, you see how many people come on this show. There's some big names that come on the show and it's because a lot of the, they believe in what we're talking about, uh, but not many people have been outspoken about it. So I think there's gonna there's like a turning point where it's gonna be a mix, where you have guys, some guys throwing hard, but some with command. Like there's there's like a level it's gonna come to where you to realize that we don't care if we have the hardest throwers. If if the hardest throwers win, great. Uh, right. But we want to win games, right? No doubt about it. The last thing I always do on the show is I have uh, nine things I'm going to show you on the screen. And there are different qualities that I thought uh, pitchers ought to have to be, you know, good pitchers. And I ask a, a guest, if you would please pick, what are your top four? If you just the top four of what you would want in a pitcher. Okay. So out of this list, which are the top four that you think pitchers need? And I'll read them off for people who are listening. Uh, a character, command, chain of speeds, movement, max velocity, sequencing, reading batters, mental toughness, and know who you are. Yeah, this is a, it's a tough one, right? Because you put all the good stuff in there, and uh, right. If right, if you had, if a guy had all those things, he'd be a, a Hall of Famer, right? Right, right. So I, off the top, I'm going to throw out max velocity right off the top because I think you can win without max velocity all day, every day, in any, in any any genre, any time, any place, um, you know, uh, wait, wait, would you, would you pick max velocity as one or are you throwing it out? No, I'm throwing it out. Yeah. I wouldn't, I oh, wouldn't okay. pick that as one. Um, I think, I think command command is definitely one for me. Um, movement is number two. Cause that's talking about that consistent kind of a uh, shape. 
You know, yeah. so I'm, command and movement are definitely two. And then I'm going to go with character because I think if you have good character, that's gonna that's gonna give you the ability to know who you are, have mental toughness. Um, yeah. So I'm going character, command, movement, and then and then I'm going to go with sequencing over changing speeds. Just you know, they're both super important, but I, I think the sequencing might take care of changing the speeds if you if you can kind of sequence your pitches right. So I, I'm gonna my top four are gonna be character, command sequencing and movement awesome yeah that fits with how you pitch too <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's it's uh you know it's a mixed bag like you said and there's so many different ways to kind of slice it and you just hope guys can figure out like we said how, how do how do you help your team the best with the skill set that you were kind of either born with or that you've procured over the years in the minor yeah, be, league be you it's like be you. It's like the, the team's got you on that mound because of who you are. Don't try to be some other pitcher. Try to be true to yourself and true to your teammates. Uh, I think if you help other people, uh, most people are good. They'll help you when you need it. And the other thing, too, um, that I had talked about with Scott Lovecamp over the years that the Yankees have come around to the idea, and I don't know if any other organization has, is that the fact that you draft a player when he's 18 years old or let's say 21 out of college, it makes no difference either way. And you've been watching this guy for a couple of years and there's a certain amount of skills that he that he's bringing to the table that you think makes him successful. And then you ship him into the minor leagues and the scout has nothing to do with this player ever again. So you take him from the scout, scouting him for a couple of years, you give him over to the minor league um, pitching coaches who then have their own ideas of how this guy should be. And so I was really pleasantly surprised Scott to tell me that the Yankees, you know, allow him to still have um, some time with these guys that he's drafted for the first couple of years. So that the way you don't change him so much and you kind of take the magic away from him. Uh, Scott is down there in Tampa with them while they're developing. So they kind of keep it in line with, well, we drafted this guy because of this. Let's kind of keep him the same, but make him better, a better version of himself. Right, right. You know, and I've had a few uh, directors of scouting on the show, too. We were talking about that kind of thing, the link between once you once you draft a guy, how do you develop them? Because like you said, if you bring him in and immediately try to change him, it's like you you've erased what quality that the scout saw in him, you know. Yeah, and sometimes when you tinker with a guy too much early on, it's hard to get back to who he was before, not only confidence-wise, but even mechanically. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things I had told my son years ago was as he started doing well, I told him, people want to help you. And I said, people really generally want to help you and give you advice, but a lot of them will be very, very wrong. I said, you're going to have to decide how to not take their advice in a polite way but uh, also choose who you listen to. So I would think you probably had a lot to do. You're probably probably taught you that kind of thing as well, right? Yeah, I mean, going through the minor leagues, you absolutely found out that, you know, not only, not only you know, did people in the organization at the highest of levels up to the GM have different ideas of how you should get things done, but every single pitching coach you'd come across at every level might have a different way that he wanted you to get outs and the way he thought about 
you being. And so sometimes, like you said, you had to find ways to take information in and say, mm, that's not going to work for me and I need to discard it. And sometimes it puts you in a, in a bit of a predicament because as a young guy, you can't just look, you know, a guy in the, in the face who's your, your, your pitching coach at the double A level, who's had a successful major league career or not and and say, you know, Hey man, I'm not listening to you. You can't, you can't say it that bluntly. So you have to find ways mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, massage the situation. And that, that does put guys in a, in a bad predicament sometimes. And they get, some guys can get, you know, into, you know, situations where the organization will kind of write them off merely for the fact that, you know, he, they're trying to tinker with him in a way that he doesn't agree with. And he's mm -hmm. kind of like, he's rocking the boat, but um, you know, you can just hope that most guys eventually get to a place like I did with the Red Sox, where they kind of say, whatever you're bringing to the table is good enough for us, man. And we'll just leave you alone. And it took me, yeah. it took me three years, four years at the big league level, bouncing up and down with the pirates before I got that honor with, with the Red Sox. And once I got that, I felt like, like I was my old self in the minor leagues and I was freed up to kind of pitch without thinking so much. And it really helped. Yeah. Cause I like to, in today, like with your leg kick, they would be trying to tinker with that all day. Yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. that's also been a problem in the game is not, not having uniformity throughout the organization. You know, I, when I played for the Diamondbacks for two years, it was the first team I had been on ever where the rookie league all the way to the big league level, they were teaching the same things with the pitching coaches, right? You didn't have that a lot. I mean, I've played for organizations where in the early years where one pitching coach had a totally different philosophy than the guy just above him at the next level. And it's, it's almost impossible to have consistency when you do that. And so, you know, they're having to clean up the, the front office as well as players getting better at what we do in order to get the best product possible. And you just hope that that continues. Well, Bronson, it, it's been great having you on the show. You know? I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm off right now to, to do the second hardest thing in the world besides hit a baseball is try to hit a golf ball and see if I can straighten that thing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to check out your album, too. I, gotta, if it's, I didn't know that you had one with original stuff, so I got to hear that. I really liked, uh, I genuinely liked your Everlong cover. That was really cool. Oh. Thanks. If you like rock and roll, the, the album's pretty rock and roll. Uh, there's a couple of softer songs on it, but that it looks like that right there is the cover of the album. It's called Some Might Say. It's a white cover with a guy walking on it with the uh, with with the color wheel on his head. So you, um, yeah. Well, All right. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Don't forget to hit subscribe to get notified when new episodes are released. Pitching Command Show. Brought to you by Command Tracker, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com.